Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused upon contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we are joined by Mira Levinson, Harvard University. Mira Levinson, welcome. Thanks for uh, sitting down and chatting with me. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. Fantastic. Um, So uh, just to sort of get started, uh, I wonder if you might uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to the uh, field of philosophy and education, or the philosophical study of education. Sure. So I came into college um, actually thinking I was going to do math and philosophy um, because I had read... um, when I was younger, actually, like Gerda Lescher-Bach, um, sure, and I had also read James Blake's book on chaos, and on um, read a book about quantum mechanics, and so I was really excited about thinking about like how multiple universes and uncertainty, like the you know um, uncertainty principle, and so forth, uh, influenced uh, our own moral judgments. And so I had actually, when I was a kid, written this play about these you know, these physicists. Um, having a picnic by the side of a lake um, and watching a child, a toddler, like wander into the lake and then start to drown. And they debate whether or not they should save him because, of course, if they save him in this universe, then in a parallel universe he might die, whereas if they don't save him here in a parallel universe he'll live. They finally decide to save him, but irony of ironies, he's already drowned, right? (laughs) So I show up at college thinking that this is what math and philosophy is about, and I soon discover, no, it's about, you know, whether three exists, right, or what, you know, or zero, Um, and... I thought, oh my gosh, this is not what I thought I was signing on for at all. And it turned out I was terrible at it. I was just awful at both philosophy of mathematics and philosophy of language. Okay. Um, <laughs> and whereas, uh, so then I just sort of stumbled on moral and political philosophy and discovered that those were actually, those were the questions I cared about. Right. What ought we to do? How sure. ought we to live our lives? You know, what impact do our choices have on the world? And how do we think about that? Um, and... And I also really cared about schools. I had volunteered in college in lots of educational settings and mm. science education and so forth. Um, and so then when I went off to do my um, doctorate in political theory at Oxford, um, I knew I wanted to write about education and mm. about schools because I was interested in our obligations to children and what children deserved. And there was a lot of things stuff being written about what you know parents' rights, right. the state's rights, children's in rights, right? So there, yeah. in the tensions there. And interestingly, and then as you may know, I left philosophy, you know, as a um, uh, as a profession uh, for basically a decade. Um, but my reasons for coming back to it were the same reasons that got me into it, mm. which is that I wanted to figure out how we ought to act in the world and what we owed kids. What mm. what did children deserve, and what did children deserve in particular in these institutions that we call schools, mm. because they are massively important for kids' lives, um, and so we ought to figure out what we should be doing in them and how we can do that and, you know, discharge our moral obligation. But you also said something else that I think is quite interesting, that uh, you took a break from uh, philosophy professionally, uh, and you were in schools, and I, mm-hmm. I wonder, to your mind, how that's contributed to the work that you've produced after your return to academia, sort of, uh, professionally. Yeah, so, um, it. 
gave me a whole new set of questions to think about mm. that um, I had not thought about uh, sort of as a political philosopher, a philosopher of education working solely within the academy. Mm. Um, and as you know, one of the most notable questions that uh, spurred me to think about was, um, at least in an abstract way, how do notions of individual autonomy, which sure. I had argued for in my you know, dissertation sure. in my first book, apply in the context of de facto segregated schools right. and of massive racial, economic, et cetera, injustice, right? right? And that was a question I was certainly not spurred to ask, you know, based on just reading the philosophy of education literature. It was right. a question I was spurred to ask based on teaching in the Atlanta and then the Boston public schools. And so more um, broadly, not only do I continue to think about questions that were philosophical, sort of philosophical and moral questions that are spurred by practice, hmm. um, but also, I really come to believe that that's how at least some, if not many, philosophers of education should do their work. So even as I get more distant from my experiences as an eighth grade teacher for sure. eight years, I am continuing to sort of do work as and try to get others and my graduate students and so forth to do work that is grounded in educators and students' experiences in school and to find questions within those experiences, as opposed to finding questions within the literature to apply to practice. But so uh, I wonder if you might say uh, a few words about some of the recent work that you've been doing, uh, pursuing some of these uh, abiding interests that you had from your time as an eighth grade uh, teacher, uh, and how these questions have sort of uh, uh, developed into the questions that uh, uh, you've been pursuing in some of your recent, uh, recent writing. Sure. Um, so, as you know, um, the last, uh, so I published last year this book, No Citizen Left Behind, um, that really sort of was the culmination of, of this decade of trying to make sense of what I was doing as a white female upper middle class teacher in um, urban schools serving predominantly low income students of color and what my responsibilities were, what we were trying to achieve, how we could achieve it, et cetera. And that led me, so trying to think about that and shifting from, say, thinking about individual achieving individual autonomy for children and thinking about autonomy as a more collective uh, capacity mm. um, and about the, about the sort of broad social and collective conditions that need to apply in order for a desirable and valuable kind of individual autonomy to take place uh, led me to think about uh, the school's role in promoting civic empowerment mm. and to talk about the civic empowerment gap, which then in turn led me to think about issues of civic identity and democracy and to question philosophical claims about, say, a collective civic identity that I started mm. to think we actually didn't have and to start oh, to think about... Um, issues of uh, direct issues of race and how we teach about race in the classroom and what's philosophically defensible to teach right. and thinking about you know solidarity and double consciousness and so forth and so that was so that was a whole set of sort of substantive considerations mm. that I wrote about in No Citizen Left Behind um, and thinking about the role of assessment and all sure, this and yeah. so forth. That's led me on to my newer project um, on justice in schools, okay. which is um, 
substantively still very much in line with that older project, although not confined to issues of civic empowerment. So the basic question behind it, or the premise, is that um, teachers have the obligation to enact justice in their classrooms, and educators have the obligation to enact justice in schools and in districts. And in fact, educators embrace that. Uh, I mean, they, they want to sure. act ethically, yeah. and they tend to have no clue how to do it, right? And, we're, and uh, teachers are faced with dilemmas of justice all the time. Sure. And then they go home at night and beat themselves up over the judge, you know, but what they did. But we don't give teachers any tools helping them create an ethical repertoire in the okay. same way that they have a pedagogical repertoire sure. yeah. or a set of or ethical heuristics, something. And at the same time, one of the reasons that they don't have um, tools for thinking through these dilemmas of justice mm. that they face is because political theorists don't have any to give them. Sure. All right. So that when we look at what political theorists write about justice, it does not tell a teacher, what do I do when I have this disruptive child in my classroom? Right. Yeah. Uh, and do I kick him out or do I keep him in? And how do I think about my obligations toward him versus mm. the other 26 kids in my class? How do, and how, how do I balance these considerations? Or what do I do when I have a kid who has not met the benchmarks for promotion, if I pass her on to the next grade, she is not going to be prepared. She is going to require an immense number of resources. Sure. And yet if we retain her, she's going to drop out. Yeah. Right? What do you do? Right. That's a classic dilemma of justice that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of teachers face every single year. Sure. And frankly, political theory has nothing to say to that yet. And so... Both substantively, mm -hmm. I want to explore those kinds of questions, but then methodologically, okay. I want to push uh, philosophy of education mm -hmm. to start with those kinds of problems. You know, right. you walk into a school and in 10 minutes, or you talk to a teacher within 10 minutes, they will start talking to you about these kinds of dilemmas. And so we have some capacities to help think through those dilemmas. It's not that we can answer them necessarily, sure. but we have tools in our arsenal. And as we do that, though, we will discover we need to develop more tools and we will actually generate more theory and I think better philosophy of education as we engage with those kinds of very concrete dilemmas than if we mm -hmm. simply sort of work from the top down. Well, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, I mean, you'd mentioned uh, your, your previous work in the uh, civic uh, uh, civic empowerment gap, um, and it occurs to me that perhaps not everyone listening uh, uh, knows uh, exactly what's, what's meant by the term. But Shocking. They haven't I, I, all read my book. <laughs> I'm sure that at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the, the, uh, the episode, they'll uh, rush out to pick it up. But I wonder if you could just uh, say a little bit uh, about uh, exactly what you mean by the, by the concept. Sure. Um, so most... Basically, the civic empowerment gap is an analog to the academic achievement gap. Right? And so, as um, I guess as many of the listeners will know, that the concept of the academic achievement gap has been introduced into uh, American and actually international public discourse about education and education reform over the last 20 years. And I think it's a very powerful way of morally reframing patterns that everybody has known have existed for decades, which is that, say, the, uh, you know, the findings are actually still in the United States, that, say, the average African-American um, 12th grader mm. reads at the same level as the average white 8th grader, yeah. right? And by framing it as an academic achievement gap, one of the aims has been to say 
that that is morally unacceptable. It's not that there, there are problems in individual bodies of individual kids sure. and that black kids don't have the capacity, sure. but that we as a society are failing kids because we do believe that all kids have the capacity to learn and achieve at a certain fairly high level, and so that we have the responsibility to eliminate that gap, right? Um, and that similarly, we have known for, uh, you know, decades that um, civic and political power uh, is distributed very unevenly um, in the United States, and in fact around the world, but pretty, but actually even more so in the United States than elsewhere. Um, especially by class, mm -hmm. by socioeconomic um, status, but also by race and ethnicity and by citizenship sure. status, certainly. Um, and so it, it's an attempt to say, all right, we know that, say, uh, poor people have a lot less political and civic power than sure. rich people do. Sure. Um, but we can't keep treating that as a natural state of affairs in the same way that we used to treat as a natural state of affairs the fact that black children sure. uh, got uh, learned so much less than white children. Instead, we need to take collective responsibility and say that this is not natural, and we have an equally strong obligation to eliminate the civic empowerment gap because otherwise we can't claim to be a democracy. Okay, fascinating. Fantastic. I know that uh, uh, we're sort of moving to the end of our time sure. here and I wonder if you just might, I wonder if you might say a little bit about what you think uh, is on the horizon for uh, folks sort of occupying this intersection of philosophy and uh, education. Sure. Um, so one of the things that I'm trying to do in this new work on justice in schools uh, methodologically is to promote a concept of the normative case study, which mm -hmm. I've taken from um, a sociologist, David Thatcher. It's a wonderful article called The Normative Case Study, um, and where we it's grounded in an empirical case, um, and then we do normative theorizing about it, but in conversation with the empirical case and with social science literature surrounding the empirical conditions, so that we actually so we don't just make assumptions about how things work. Um, and but then we can actually contribute uh, normative theory. It will actually help grow more normative theory as well as actually theory that applies to real cases and can be helpful to educators. And so it would be great from my perspective if more philosophers of education took up this practice. Sure. Okay. Okay. So sort of uh, uh, wedding social scientific uh, uh, approaches to uh, some of the, uh, uh, the theorizing that, uh, uh, that we do. Yes, although it, always with a normative perspective. So sure. there's stuff that we yeah. can do that, you know, social scientists can't, Cannot. but yes. Okay. Well, fantastic. Uh, Mira Levinson, thank you so much for taking some time and chatting with us uh, today. Thank you, Winston. This was great. Okay. It was really fun. Fantastic. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm.